The word dharma in Sanskrit, or dhamma in Pali, means truth, it means the law, it means the nature of things. And in this context specifically, it means the teachings of the Buddha. And the two great wings of the dharma, the two great wings of the practice, are wisdom and compassion. And both of these wings are needed on this great flight of awakening. Without wisdom, we might well have compassion for all the suffering in the world, but we won't necessarily understand its causes. And therefore, we might not have an effective means to alleviate it. Or we may have insight and wisdom into the nature of suffering, but without compassion, we might well not have the motivation to act, to help to alleviate it. And so wisdom and compassion each serve each other. Tonight I'd like to talk primarily about compassion, what it is, the wisdom that gives rise to it in our lives, and how we can manifest it in the world. So compassion is that strong and deep feeling that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. It's that power of the heart that actually motivates us to take action. It was this feeling that motivated the Bodhisattva in his countless lifetimes on the path to Buddhahood. It's precisely this feeling of compassion for the suffering of beings that fueled that whole journey. Compassion arises in us when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, both our own and others. I'm going to be reading a few quotes from the Dalai Lama during this talk because he's such an exemplar of compassion. He's spoken so eloquently about it. He said, Compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated They are simple, but difficult to practice. I think this is a really important understanding to have. We may want to be compassionate, and perhaps we may be at different times, but it's not always easy to open to the suffering that's present. Just as you've noticed in your meditation practice and in your life, just as it's not always easy to open to the suffering or the pain in our own minds and bodies, in the same way, it's often not easy to open to the suffering that we see in the world around us. There are very strong tendencies in our minds which we can observe that keep us defended from it, that keep us withdrawing from pain or suffering, that keep us indifferent, that keep us apathetic. So just as an experiment, as a way of exploring and investigating 
this dynamic you know, in your own minds and experience. Pay close attention the next time you are in a situation of suffering where you're coming close to it in your life. It might be some pain in the body. It might be some emotional distress, discontent or fear or unworthiness or jealousy or loneliness, some afflictive emotion. It might be an interaction with a difficult person, you know, where just the relationship is difficult and creates suffering. Or it could be the many examples of the great suffering that's in the world. So pay attention. When we come close to a situation like this, what happens in our minds? As we face these situations, either with ourselves, with a person, or with the vivid images in the media, you know, where we see so much suffering, what's the response of our mind in the face of this? And really to take an honest look. Do we feel uneasy? Do we, do we withdraw? Do we numb out? Do we let it in? I had a very vivid example of the different things my mind would do with respect to suffering. In the years I was practicing in India, and those of you who've been to India know the very pitiable, pitiable, pitiful conditions of the dogs there. They're not well-groomed pets, you know, the, the dogs in the street. It's really they're full of mange and often without any fur and often half-starving. And there are a lot of these dogs around. And I remember so clearly times when I would just be sitting, you know, in the local bazaar in a chai shop, a tea shop, just having tea and talking with friends, you know, and these mongrel dogs would just kind of wander looking. And it was so interesting to watch my mind because at times, go away. You know, it's like I just didn't want to see it. It was so unpleasant. And I could feel that kind of withdrawal, you know, and, and retraction from the truth of it. And at other times when I would allow myself just to be with it, you know, and to really open to it and actually to connect with the being that was that dog, just in a completely open and spontaneous way, compassion would arise. It became so clear that the cause of compassion was the willingness to open to suffering. And just to watch those times when we can do it, and we do do it, and to watch those times when we don't, when we just are in the habit of pulling back. Mary Oliver wrote a wonderful poem which just expresses this in a slightly different way. And I'll, I'll read just some, some lines of it. It's called Beyond the Snow Belt. And she's describing a, a snowstorm, blizzard, 
you know, a couple of counties north. So she wrote, over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, (coughs) the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A wild place never visited, so we forget with ease each mortality. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And she just captures, I think, so beautifully that move of the heart. You know, when our hearts are closed to the suffering, all news arrives as from a distant land. And when we can open, the suffering is immediate and our compassionate response is immediate. So the question, I think, for all of us in our lives is how can our hearts stay open given the magnitude of suffering that exists in our own lives and in the world? is Is it even possible to stay open given the truth of suffering? This challenge is not a theoretical one because it's not really enough to simply admire the qualities of metta, of loving-kindness, of compassion. You know, it's not enough to admire them from afar and admire people who have them. To admire them as being noble ideas and, you know, it would be wonderful if we could do it, but to feel that they're removed from our daily lives. And it's not enough to simply cultivate these qualities of love and compassion in the solitude of a meditation retreat. I think in our understanding of Dharma practice in its broadest scope, that the practice is about the transformation of our own consciousness that makes the openness of heart possible. What understandings do we need to engender within us that will allow us increasingly to stay open to the suffering, to stay open to compassion? A number, quite a few years ago, there was an article in the Harvard Medical Journal about a Tibetan doctor. His name was Tenzin Chodak. He had been a physician to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In 1959, he was imprisoned by the Chinese in Tibet. He was imprisoned for 21 years. And in this article, it said that for 17 of those 21 years, he was tortured and abused daily, tormented daily, and that his life was actually in danger. each day for 17 of those years. 
In the article about him, it was an interview with him, Tenzin Chodok described four points of understanding, four aspects of wisdom that he drew upon and which enabled him to survive you know, those horrendous conditions with his heart intact. It said in the article that he, sh- he really showed no signs of post-traumatic stress, as one might well expect. I mean, people can survive horrendous conditions in many ways, but to come out of an ordeal like that with a triumph of the heart, you know, where the love is not diminished, where one has not been overcome with hatred or anger, is quite an accomplishment. And so I want to talk about kind of these four points of understanding that he came to and which sustained him and enabled him to keep his heart open because they apply to our lives as well. I just want to read a short biographical sketch of uh, Dr. Chodok. It's by a a man by the name of Claude Levinson who described him in this way. An appearance almost of timidity on first meeting. A voice so quiet it might be a whisper. Dr. Chodok could easily pass unnoticed until you meet his gaze a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything, seeing beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and the abuses he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow beings. So clearly he knows something. You know, to have that quality of being after having gone through an experience like he did. So the first insight he talked about was his understanding of the need to put the difficult, even horrendous situation, in a larger context. And he said that he saw how even in the most deplorable of circumstances, some human greatness can be accomplished. And that phrase just really inspires me to think, okay, in in whatever situation we find ourselves, if we could enlarge the context to see, okay, in this situation, what quality of human greatness, greatness of heart, can we accomplish? He saw that in the face of great suffering, he could still practice love. So in times of hopefully much less difficulty for us, even in much less trying circumstances, can we remember this? Someone disturbs us or irritates us. Is our reaction annoyance? Is it judgment? Is it anger? Or, even if we do have those reactions at first, can we transmute them? Can we transform them? 
can we enlarge the context of our own particular difficult situation, asking ourselves what greatness of heart can be accomplished here. The Dalai Lama kind of summed this up when he said, your enemy teaches you patience. I think there's a PS that needs to be put there. And that is, it's very easy to be patient when no one is bothering us. You know, and so we can think, oh yeah, I'm patient, all the conditions are fine, and there's no irritation. It's precisely when we are irritated by something, or we are disturbed by something. So it doesn't have to be some, you know, great life enemy. It can just be the normal difficulties that we may come across in a day. Those are the situations, if we can remember at those times, not to get stuck in the reaction of irritation or disturbance, but realize, yes, I can actually work with this in a way that cultivates some greatness of heart. So this is a practice. So the second insight he had, which sustained him during his time, was to see that his torturers, his enemies, were human beings just like himself. Not only that, and this was really quite an amazing understanding to carry through all this, he saw that his guards and his tormentors were people who were in adverse circumstances just as he was because they were creating all of that unwholesome karma that would surely bring about their own future suffering. Just imagine the quality of mind that could enlarge to the extent to be able to see that and actually feel the commonality of the human predicament. I mean, that, that understanding is what allows compassion to be there even in such an unbelievable circumstance. He never forgot the commonality of the human predicament and understanding that all actions have consequences. All actions will bring results. But remarkably, he didn't, he didn't see this understanding of karma as a vehicle of revenge. It wasn't, oh, these guys will get theirs. He understood this law of cause and effect as a vehicle of compassion. Again, from the Dalai Lama, he said, Your enemies may disagree with you, may be harming you, but in another aspect they are still human beings like you. They also have the right not to suffer and to find happiness. If your empathy can extend out like that, it is unbiased, genuine compassion. So this is a high bar. This is, this is really telling us that in situations of difficulty with other people, can we understand the com- commonality? The third insight he had which sustained his ability to keep his heart open, 
was understanding the importance of humility and letting go of feelings of pride and self-importance. You know, and these are attitudes that can arise so easily in times of conflict. You know, when we're in conflict or we think somebody's harming us in some way, how often kind of does our back go up and we feel self-righteous or pride or it's such a common reaction. This doesn't mean that we adopt a posture of some false humility or self-abnegation. That's not what this is about. Rather, we let go of the tendency in times of conflict. We let go of the tendency of self-aggrandizement. You know, whether interpersonally or even within the framework of our own inner psychology. And so to keep an eye out for that tendency towards self-importance or self-aggrandizement. To re-emphasize, this is not a question of taking a stance of meekness. Oh, yes, I'm so humble. You know, and it's not that. The writer and and being had the wonderful understanding, he, he wrote under the name of Wei Wu Wei. He had a great aphorism. He said, True humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. Right? So it's not a stance that the ego takes. I'm so humble. True humility is the absence of anyone there to be proud. So that's the space you know, that we need to explore. Dr. Chodak, in this article, he actually attributed his survival you know, during all those years in prison to his ability to let go of pride and feelings of self-importance. He said that's what saved his life. In our own lives, we can see how easily these feelings of self-righteousness arise. And there are so many examples of it. You know, whenever we're hurt or offended or disturbed in some way, that can be a natural reaction. I mean, those of you who have practiced in Burma know that most of the monasteries, at least that I've been at, have these great love affairs with construction projects. (laughs) And it just seems like every time I've been there, you know, they're just building and building. And so one year I was, you know, I was there one time and right outside my room, they were straightening out steel rebars that were bent. So they were just clanging metal on metal all day long. You know. Talk about feelings of self-righteousness. I mean, here I came all the way to Burma. I went to all this trouble to come here and practice in this meditation center to get enlightened. And what are they doing? Blah, 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 you know. 
I mean, it certainly didn't help my practice, <laughs> the reaction in my mind. And it took a while to begin to see that the universe did not revolve around my preferences, you know, and that there were other conditions and factors at work, and maybe all that banging was for the greater good. What's so amazing is when we can let go of that kind of self-righteous feeling, you know, when we're offended or, or disturbed in some way, actually find in these different circumstances that what we're disturbed by in itself is not a problem. The problem was my own reaction. When I could let go of it, the noise was just the noise. It was unpleasant. It didn't become pleasant. But unpleasant is fine. It's just another arising. It can be as mindful and as aware and as equanimous with clanging metal as with anything else. So this is a great lesson that we all have to learn in one way or another. Okay, so letting go of these feelings of pride and self-importance or self-aggrandizement. The fourth insight that he had, and one that's very familiar to us from the texts, was his understanding that hatred towards one's enemies is never skillful because violence and hatred always begets more violence and hatred. And we just have to look around the world today to see the truth of this. You know, we look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we look at the war in Iraq, we look at the civil wars in Africa. I mean, so many places, so many situations in this country. Hatred and violence are never a skillful response because they only beget more of the same. And as you know, the famous verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. It ceases only in response to love. But this is a challenge. It's not always easy to love or have compassion for those who we think are doing harm or harming us. This is a great challenge for us. But if we can bring our consciousness to these situations, it's possible for loving kindness, for metta and compassion to grow when we see that they are the most beneficial motivation for an effective response. If we really want to help the situation, the most skillful motivation behind a whole variety of ways of responding, it doesn't have to be hallmark card sweetness, but what's our motivation in whatever response we have? If the motivation is compassion, if the motivation is metta, there's a wide range of skillful response that we can bring.
So hopefully, most of us won't be in the situation of being tortured by our enemies. But can we hold these perspectives and these understandings even in much less trying circumstances? When someone is angry with us, or we're in a difficult situation, remember that the difficulty itself, the very situation, can be the cause for helping us to strengthen patience and love. In these situations, we can investigate and hold the question, in the face of this difficulty, what human greatness can I accomplish? So that, I mean, it's, a, it's an inspiring enlargement of context. Remind ourselves that everyone in the situation shares a common humanity, that we're all in the same boat, particularly with respect to the law of cause and effect. Everybody wants to avoid suffering. Everybody wants to be happy. Can we remember to let go of pride and self-importance? And can we remember that hatred and enmity will only cease by love? So these were the four understandings or aspects of wisdom that Tenzin Chodok sustained himself with during those times. And the fruit of them is amazing in kind of the triumph of his heart as he emerged from those years. So in compassion and wisdom are both present, they bring a great creative power to our lives and a great creative power to the world because they help us go beyond conventional responses You know, instead of perhaps the usual mode of, oh, well, you should get angry in that situation. You should be like this, and that's because everybody's like that. When love and compassion are the guiding light of our lives, we become unconventional in our response, and we become creative in the way we respond to situations So the beginning of compassion is the quality of empathy. So this is, this is like the first step. And it happens when we're willing to come close to suffering, when we take a moment to stop and feel what is actually going on, you know, before simply rushing on with our lives. And again, it might be our own physical or emotional distress or discomfort. It might be the restless person that's sitting next to you. Can we really stop and feel what that situation is? Might be difficulties with someone we're very close to. In situations where people are behaving badly, 
Were they really doing things that are harmful? I think for most of us, our immediate focus or our immediate reaction is to their behavior. Right? And often with a lot of judgment about it, they're doing really stupid things, harmful things. It's possible, though, to stop for a moment and see and feel what is going on underneath the behavior. And when we do that, and I've had this experience so often, when I can remember to be mindful enough, to be aware enough, not to just be reactive to the bad behavior, but to stop and open up to the totality of the person, it becomes so much easier to see the suffering underneath it that's actually conditioning that behavior. When we focus on the behavior, we become reactive. When we focus on the suffering underneath it, it very often gives rise to compassion. How can I help this person come out of that suffering? How can I help them awaken from the delusion, the ignorance that's feeding it? It doesn't mean that we don't set appropriate boundaries. Because sometimes when people are doing something really harmful, a big stop is necessary. We can create the boundaries. The question for us, though, is to really see what's the motivation underneath our action. Is it out of care? Is it out of love? Is it out of compassion? Or is it out of aversion? an annoyance, and irritation. That's our part. There's one lesson here that is life-transforming when we really get it. And that is the understanding that how we feel and respond to situations is always up to us. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. Years ago, many, many, many years ago, (laughs) I was in a relationship with somebody who's still a very dear friend. And I remember one argument we were having, and she had a great line. In the middle of this argument... She said, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) I could only laugh, which I'm not sure helped the situation very much. (laughs) But nobody makes us feel anything. When we understand this and when we can really work with this, it's tremendously empowering. The Buddha had a a wonderful description of this in his talking about right speech. And this is just a paraphrase, but he said, people may speak to you truthfully or untruthfully with intention to harm or intention to help, with kind words or harsh words. And he goes through this whole list. People speak to us in many different ways. And he said, regardless of how people 
speak with you. One should abide with a heart of loving-kindness, with concern for their welfare and the welfare of all beings. That's not the usual message we get, you know, about how to respond. But that's where the empowerment is. So being willing to come close to suffering opens the door to compassion, which is a step further than empathy. You know, empathy is that, that openness and the ability to really stop and feel what is going on with another person in the situation. Compassion takes it a step further. Compassion is the feeling that's strong enough so that it motivates us to act. It's that wish to alleviate the suffering. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh expressed it well when he said, compassion is a verb. Right? And it just, that contains that understanding that with compassion we act. Years ago, uh, Ramdas and another friend, Paul Gorman, wrote this book basically about compassionate action, and they had a great title for it. The title was, How Can I Help? You know, and sometimes just that phrase kind of comes up in the mind in different situations. That's, that's the voice of compassion, right? In a situation, how can I help? How can I help alleviate this? As compassion grows in us, we begin to practice a very active engagement with the world, with the suffering in the world. And we respond to the various needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate and possible for us. I came across a little poem or verse by Ryokan, you know, the 18th century Japanese hermit and monk and poet. And he would just wander the mountains, you know, by himself and then playing with the village children, meditating in his little hut. He had nothing, very poor. And there's many wonderful verses and poetry that he wrote. And I came across this. I'm not sure what it means, but somehow, somehow it's about compassion. So I'd like to read it. And I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. I love that. (laughs) I don't know, somehow it evoked in me you know, all those beings that nobody would bother with, that nobody would want to steal, you know, that no one would value. And it's just, I don't know, in just this very simple way it evoked all that for me. I'll say it for my begging bowl.
So compassion is responding just to the various needs of beings in whatever way we can. Sometimes we can act in very unregarded ways, you know, just a small gesture of friendliness or kindness or generosity to the people around us. Just little things. Again, the Dalai Lama wrote, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. You know, and he said, for those of you who have seen him or met him, it's just like that. You know, you meet him and it, it's as if he's meeting this old friend, the most important person in the world, with everybody. You know, it's an extraordinary quality. So can we just remember that and, and you know, begin to practice it? Sometimes compassion manifests with tremendous determination, you know, where there's, where there's an amazing strength of mind. Maybe some of you know of Dr. Paul Farmer. He's kind of a health care worker who spent many years in Haiti, you know, treating the poor and then in different places around the world. There's a wonderful book of his life. It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. And there's one little story in the book where Dr. Farmer is being criticized for spending so much time going to these very remote places to care for just a few people because, and it was his colleagues who, who were saying, you know, you could be so much more effective and help so many more people if you just stayed here and treated everybody who came. So this is his response, and it's just, it's so beautiful. He said, if you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. And it's, it's such a challenge to our own way of being in the world. Because I know for me, and probably for most of you, some lives do matter less. You know? And that's the root of all that's wrong in the world. You know, and so is it possible to kind of see that and see those situations when we're responding in that way and remember, oh, there's another possibility here. So all of this, I feel it's not, you know, that we should expect ourselves to be great saints all of a sudden, but to see it all as a practice, when we understand what the practice actually is of compassion... Now, sometimes compassion manifests, sometimes it's in these small, unregarded ways, sometimes, you know, with, with great strength. Sometimes compassion manifests really through astounding courage. 
And of course, there are famous people that we all know who manifest this, people like Martin Luther King or Aung San Suu Kyi or you know, Gandhi. But I recently just read of a story of just an extraordinary, ordinary person, you know, not somebody big and famous. And you may have read this story. It was in the papers a while ago of this man, his name is Wesley Autry, who lived in New York. You know, he was down in the subway, taking, taking the subway, and some young man had a seizure on the platform and fell onto the tracks. And just without hesitation, he understood that if somehow he could cover the, this young guy so that he wouldn't move, there'd be a possibility you know, of not being killed. And so he just, without thinking, he jumped on the track, spread his body over the sky, said the train came within inches. There was grease on his hat. And what's more amazing, after you know, they were both safe and people were kind of in awe of what he had done, he just treated it as the most ordinary thing. Well, it was obvious that that was the thing to do. Well, that's compassion so integrated into a being, you know, that the action was just spontaneous and in the moment quite remarkable. So, just shows us possibilities. Sometimes compassion can be very fierce, really fierce, in ways that most of us probably would not feel comfortable uh, manifesting. So this is a story about Deepama, you know, who herself had gone through a lot of suffering. This was our teacher from India, this extraordinary woman. You know, and you probably all know her story. She lost two children, her husband, and a lot of grief. So she had a lot of suffering in her life. But this is a story from after she had gone through her meditation training and was this amazingly accomplished woman. So this is somebody speaking about Deepama. There's a woman uh, what's her name? Sudipti is, is the woman's name. She said, when my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. Today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Your building is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this is my building, this car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. That's powerful. 
you know, in a time of losing one's child. But that's compassion. You know, Deepama was just going right to the heart of the cause of suffering. But it takes takes a great courage to be that fierce, you know, to manifest compassion in that way at those times. But Deepama had so much love and so much compassion and so much wisdom and she was able to do that. And there's the compassion of the Buddha, you know, the Bodhisattva who spent countless lifetimes practicing not just to alleviate the suffering of particular situations, but to really get at the root causes, you know, to explore the nature of greed and hatred and delusion and all those forces in the mind that are the cause of suffering. Of all the expressions of bodhisattva action, I just came across this one, and I think it's my favorite. This is something, I just read it today. Uh, It was a teaching of Trungpa Rinpoche. (laughs) He said, bodhisattvas should not become a nuisance to other sentient beings. (laughs) Moreover, you should save them. (laughs) I think that kind of captures it. (laughs) You know, don't be a nuisance to other sentient beings, and moreover, <laughs> save them. <laughs> so that's the quote for the day. <laughs> there is no particular prescription, you know, for what we should do. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action, because the field of compassion is limitless. It's the field of sentient beings. You know, and in this world of sentient beings, with all the suffering, we each find our own way according to our capabilities, according to our interests, according to what's possible for us. We might be very engaged with the world. We might be sitting in a cave in the Hamadias. And if we're doing that with the motivation of a kind heart, that's as compassionate an action as anything we might do in the world. This is another, another little verse from Ryokan. He said, It may seem that I have locked myself away from the people of the world, and yet why is it I have never ceased to think of them? You know, it just captures that motivation that can underlie practice in solitude that we're doing it for the welfare and the benefit of all beings. I mean, we are all the recipients of the great blessings of the Buddha's awakening, you know, where countless lifetimes were spent in solitude and in practice and became the, the basis for his enlightenment. As we purify our own hearts and minds, we will inevitably 
connect with and take care of other beings. Kensi Rinpoche was one of the really great Tibetan meditation masters of the last century. He said that when you realize the empty nature of phenomena, the selfless nature, which is what all our practice is about, when you realize the selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others will dawn uncontrived and effortless. And so we begin to see how wisdom and compassion come together. Compassion is the activity of wisdom. Compassion is the activity of selflessness. So each in our own way, it's like we plant the seeds of a kind heart. We plant this seed of an aspiration. May my practice, may my life, may my actions be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And as we plant the seed and water it and nurture it, it really can become the guiding principle of our lives. May my life and my practice be for the welfare and benefit and awakening of all beings. And even when we're not acting from that place of compassion and wisdom, which many times we won't be, we're not fully there yet. But even in those moments when we're not, if we've cultivated this aspiration, it becomes the reference point for other possibilities. And so we remember, and we keep coming back to it. I'll just close with some reminders from the Dalai Lama. He said, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. And so, really, that's what we're all doing. We just understand this. The development of love, of compassion, of wisdom is not some sudden turnaround. It comes gradually. It's like turning the corner slowly, and it comes with daily practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.